On today's show, we're going to talk about the lifeblood of contractor profitability. Before we roll in today's show, if you're not signed up for any events, whether that's in person or virtual, take a look at the event calendar at events.mycontractuniversity.com and get signed up. So let's get going with today's show. Listen, this will be a two-part series that will wrap up next week on service agreements and why they are the lifeblood of your business. Take it away, Gary. Content today, we've got a, probably one of my favorite topics, uh, which is club agreements. Uh, we often refer to those as service agreements, uh, maintenance, uh, a lot of different terms for nomenclature. So uh, this goes back, just the history of this goes back into the 1950s. And there was a company in Columbus, Ohio, of all places, uh, which is now part uh, of Airtron. And it was Bogan, Bogan, and Bogan. And they were kind of credited as being the first uh, company that looked at maintenance as a way to set a service business and tie a customer base to become sticky. And uh, this back in the days when air conditioning was relatively new, really just being introduced. And so furnaces were really the core of that. Uh, so what has evolved over time is uh, companies like Train, Lennox Carrier, uh, et cetera, and most of the major manufacturers discovered that uh, their contractors' health and success would be much more beneficial uh, if they actually had a customer base that was tied into the demand service model. And no better way to do that than club agreements. So today's topic is about how to take club agreements and turn that into a profitable model. And so there's a lot of different ways to do this. Um, many, many different uh, ways or paths to success. There's no one right way. So uh, we'll go through some content. We'll go through some discussions. So with that, I always like to talk about service agreements you know, as a structure. And so a lot of people think it's a technical product. And of course, the technical product is real. We have to run the maintenance call. We have to run the actual precision tune-up and you know, conduct the, uh, the technical side of the customer experience. But what it really is, is a marketing strategy. And if you think of it as a marketing strategy first and a technical support you know, product, then what that does for you is, is it, it makes you ask the question, why would I invest you know, the time and energy to develop a high labor, low material product uh, when labor is at such a restriction you know, in our industry? And the answer is because it keeps the customer sticky and we have metrics that sort of prove the math behind the idea that an existing customer is far more beneficial and far more lucrative to you as a business owner than targeting a new customer. So if you think about that, new customer acquisition in this industry is typically between 300 and say $400. You know, that's gonna vary market to market depending on the size and scale of your marketplace. It's gonna cost more money in Chicago or Phoenix and LA than it's gonna cost, for example, in uh, Bloomington, Normal, Illinois. So just given that framework, looking at marketing as a, uh, as a platform for maintenance, you know, how do I acquire customers? Precision tune-up marketing becomes a great strategy. And, uh, and so the third part of that is, you know, when you, when you have service agreements, um, you're building a relationship with the customer each time you have an opportunity to do the maintenance. So I literally just had uh, Precision, uh, which is a company out of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, run the maintenance on my house, you know, in Brentwood. And so the technician was out there and we had an opportunity to chat. And, you know, he's a, he's a fine young man, but the opportunity for the customer connection was there. Uh, of course, the follow-up process that occurred behind that was effective as well. So the opportunity to build a relationship is really part of the marketing philosophy. So I, I, I can't stress that enough because that's really what's going to create the referrals. It's when it, it's going to create reviews. 
It's going to create opportunities for accessories. It's going to create all kinds of opportunities for future replacement as well. So as we look at this, I think there's a. It's worth noting that we're not just talking about residential. Um, again, within the framework of you know 50 minutes or so, we're not going to have time to drill deep into how each one of these works. You know, that's kind of the EGI platform. We have lots of classes where we do physical workflows and we actually go through each one of these in detail. But the residential, you know, you really have a couple different products. You've got a standard tune-up. So for us, that would be like a 23-point inspection. And that can be priced however you want. Uh, most companies today are using a one-year club agreement. You can use a multi-year club agreement strategy in bullet point C. Uh, either one of those is great. And again, the pricing on that could be you know, a low-cost product to bring customers in the door, similar to milk and bread in a grocery store. Or you can price that, you know, with what's called a bundled approach, where you might have uh, certain parts that are a part of the repair process, maybe a contactor, a capacitor, igniters, et cetera, just part of the replacement. And so the customer is paying that in an embedded price. And so the price obviously has to be higher. Again, no one right way to do this. It's a question of philosophy and how you want to approach, you know, the building of the agreements. And then what does that do for you in terms of revenue and profitability is the question. Uh, D is the one that we have a lot of conversation about in the workshops, which is the insurance-based style product, which is where a company might want to underwrite their own insurance product. Um, different states are going to have different rules. Uh, there's a ton of misinformation out there on the Facebook network groups. Uh, it makes me chuckle each time I read it that you know people say you can't do that, and what they mean is they don't understand how to do that. Um, it's certainly legal. There are requirements. You know, as long as you follow the compliance, it's certainly capable. We've been doing it since 2002. So, you know, again, states will have different requirements for how you have to hop through hoops, but it may be worth it for you to investigate that. And then the last discussion point on that slide is the commercial maintenance agreements. Um, so we teach a, a boot camp on this where commercial maintenance is a bit of a different product than residential. Um, commercial maintenance leads to an awful lot of repairs, uh, what we call spot work, and it leads to an awful lot of opportunities for replacement work. Um, I always like to tell the story that our commercial maintenance platform allowed us within a period of two months to replace 72 rooftop units in one day, 36 rooftop units a couple of weeks later in one day, and 30 rooftop units again in a one-day job. All of those were one-day jobs. So you're talking about well over 130 rooftop units that was all derived from the commercial maintenance relationship. Had we not owned the commercial maintenance agreement on that uh, platform company for several years where we were doing the workflows for that particular client, we wouldn't have had that opportunity. And there was no one else that really bid that project. So it's an opportunity to create uh, transactions because you have that relationship and you create that trust. So uh, again, we don't have a great deal of time to dive into how to price commercial maintenance agreements. That's a little more sophisticated discussion. That's really why that's a three-day workshop that's part of the EGI world. So the, the real issue then becomes, well, why would I want to do this? Like, what's the whole point? Profitability is kind of the nature of this webinar. So number one is customer retention. We all know that it's much more difficult to find a new customer than it is to retain the existing customer. So that's the first bullet. The second one is, I think if we're doing this right, we have the opportunity to have conversations with technicians about potential accessories. Uh, and potential equipment as well, of course, but the idea that you can upgrade my you know, indoor air quality 
uh, COVID obviously taught us that, you know, that, that there's a lot more information out there and a lot more people have done searches. And so uh, we were at about 500% uh, in our search volumes, you know, just in our own tracking purposes for our own heat maps and our websites where people were searching for, you know, UV lights and UVC, uh, you know, what does it do? How does it work? Can it deal with these things? So the idea that accessory sales come from the transaction, if I have a technician on site, there's an opportunity to have a conversation. And I think that's really what we're really talking about right there. And so the more we have conversations and we build trust with the customer, the better opportunity we have to be able to transact. Again, we're not going to sell something to somebody that they don't want or need, but the idea that I might be interested in that is a conversation with, with the technician. Um, so I also think that scheduling can be dealt with. So a couple of slides later, we're going to be looking at shoulder seasons and we're going to be looking at how to actually manage and manipulate the scheduling. I think that's one of the biggest challenges inside of the program. Um, historically, I'm going back into the 80s, uh, certainly in the 90s when I was working, you know, in the manufacturing and distribution side of the world. The biggest challenge was, you know, where the bulk of the demand service comes when the peak weather is in our favor. And so we transact these agreements and then we have to run those agreements the next year based on some sort of a calendar. So the scheduling and the ability to move and manipulate those calendars around is a big key. So one of the things it does do, though, is it allows me to create an opportunity to move a client into a January, February, March shoulder season, for example, in Arizona or Florida, where we have operations. And so that's an opportunity to keep the guys busy and put us in a position where we can create promotions and special offers where we can talk to customers and it's not a crisis situation. So the scheduling uh, can be both, you know, I'll call it a two edged sword. It can definitely harm you, but it also can be one of those things that helps you cut through one of the problems, which is the ability to keep your uh, crews busy and the techs busy, you know, in the shoulder seasons. There's also the opportunity for leads. And so as I talk about this, um, lead generation, you know, I've seen, uh, well, the metrics that we're going to talk about here in a bit, we like to see one out of 50. Uh, I've seen one out of six. I've seen one out of eight. I've seen companies that have older demographics that have much better numbers than one out of 15. But the beauty of that is, is that you can control the lead flow um, as, as an existing customer marketing campaign unfolds, how it affects profitability is it allows me to target through a segmented database of club customers that have a relationship with me. Just think about going to the dentist to get a cleaning. They don't let you walk out the door without scheduling you. And then when they do schedule you, you come back in. And if there's an issue, you know, they can talk to you about, all right, this is what needs to happen. It's no different when it comes to HVAC or plumbing or electrical. And so we can bundle those products and services together and create that schedule based on the last bullet. But it allows me to have conversations with customers about potentially replacing their equipment and planting that seed that, you know, especially with what we have going on now with the, uh, uh, the new law that basically will be signed, the inflation reduction. There's going to be some rebates, some focus on decarbonization and electrification. Uh, those are terms that are used out west in California. And so this is going to have a big opportunity for the lead generation uh, for club agreements because I have that relationship. So the technician, it's not a crisis. It's not pressure selling. It's just an opportunity to have a conversation. And as I just mentioned, the shoulder season marketing, the the historical nature of this would be that it's a, it's always a challenge when you have to market to new customers in the shoulder season. They do not have a pain point. They don't have a crisis. They may not be uh, using their system. The runtime hours might be low. But if you have the opportunity to do a club agreement, a precision tune-up, 
and sit with a customer, you have the opportunity to put a promotion in front of them that doesn't cost you direct mail and it's not um, a invasive media such as you know TV, radio, uh, or you know uh, even a paid search type campaign, which is expensive. So we'll go through a slide here later when we see that. Um, I also think that you need to be thinking about how do we create uh, technician training to create referrals. Uh, reviews and referrals are two of the cornerstones of current modern day digital marketing. Um, and as most of you know, I own a digital agency and have for some time. So one of the things we know is customers always go to the web first. They will look at your social media. They will certainly look at your reviews and they will certainly study your brand before that happens. So this is an opportunity to create additional lead generation, but also branding because you're building relationships. So we have to encourage the technicians and even incent them, you know, to create those opportunities for the company. Uh, I think you're going to find that if you strong, if you are strong in your club agreement uh, maintenance program, you're going to see an increase in your part sales through that process. Again, we don't want to be parts changers, but you know, if I do the technical specification and I see an opportunity to talk to a customer about, you know, perhaps the contactor is pitted, uh, I'm going to give the opportunity for the customer to make that decision. I can also create a product, you know, which is a, again, you know, call it monster maintenance, where we would actually just include that in the price. So those costs that you have are going to turn into sales and gross profit dollars, so that we increase the profitability of the maintenance club by having that as a product. So tier one product might be price point maintenance. Tier two might be something that I'll do some additional repairs for you at a particular cost. Tier three might be an all-inclusive style product. We'll get to that in a bit. And then we, we certainly own the relationship now with the model number, serial number, and the equipment. So that's plumbing. Um, that could be electrical, certainly the HVAC side. I'm not interested in the necessary idea that the homeowner is there because the average homeowner typically is somewhere around 6.8 to 7.5 years in terms of their, their, uh, their mortgage and the transition from one house to the next. But that database for the home itself and the equipment and the age of the equipment and the style of what accessories they have is something that I log. So just a bullet point for those on the call, um, I can tell you that one of the things that I learned early on was I log what the customer doesn't have. Uh, so I have an entire worksheet for the technicians. And so it essentially has everything checked. The technician has to uncheck what is not present. And that gives me a more focused technician to be able to do a uh, evaluation of the home uh, as opposed to asking somebody to see it and understand it. A lot of times newer technicians, especially newer maintenance techs, they don't have the depth of understanding. So what they do is they miss. And so we miss opportunities for our database. So this is about collecting data uh, and monetizing the data. So that's a subtle change that you can make you know, in your strategy. Uh, it's one that I've learned you know, to, as an operator is to have everything sort of evaluated as they already have it, everything that I own and sell in my business as a product. And the technician has to actually uncheck the box, which defeats the scotoma, which is sort of the blind spot. Then the idea of how we increase the profitability. So I've got a slide here later that will show you. Um, this is absolutely a high material or high labor, low material event. There's really no two ways about it. So that tends to create more overhead in a business. Uh, but if we look past that to the ability to transact accessories and transact equipment and also transact potentially plumbing and electrical in our space, the, the dollars that we can create for gross profit uh, are substantial. Uh, they tend to be higher 
um, you can write down this metric. The existing customer will pay 67% more than the new customer will. And that's just based on the principles of Harvard's research where we have a brand, we have trust, we have a relationship. Um, the recommendations that we make tend to be able to carry more trust and more weight. So we know that, uh, we know that concept and we've seen that, and that's gonna be shown in a slide as I show you the monetization of this. And then the increasing valuation when sold. So a lot of PE equity firms are out there. Uh, I'm a part of you know a couple of those. Um, I've also sold a couple of businesses to the PE groups. And so one of the things that we know is that the ability to validate a recurring revenue stream that is proven by club agreement uh, membership produces a higher multiple and it produces the, a more trust at the PE level to be able to transact that business. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get paid you know, for uh, the value of your company. This just is an evidence that uh, supports the idea that they feel more comfortable in giving you the bigger multiple because the valuation is supported by the idea that the customer base is in fact sticky. <coughs> Excuse me, apologize. Um, there's also this training opportunity. Um, this is probably more interesting today than it was 25 years ago. Uh, or maybe even 40 years ago when I first started in the trade, you know, uh, being able to hire maintenance techs and train them and grow them within the framework of your organization, I think it's probably one of the biggest challenges we face, you know, as trades businesses today. Now, we are starting to see the evolution of high schools and some of the trade schools, you know, gaining traction. So we're starting to see a little bit of relief on that. But that's going to take a generation. So what we know now is that we're going to have to hire people and the best opportunity to train them is to grow them in-house, put together your own systems and processes. Um, certainly there are people um, that EGI is affiliated with that support um, the ability to train technically and support the idea of bringing you know, people in that aren't expertise you know, uh, from the trades. Uh, but I, I promise you that getting them into the maintenance program is definitely the way to minimize the risk at the trade level. Uh, and it certainly uh, also gives us the opportunity to find out whether or not they're going to be the right kind of person culturally, et cetera. So I would encourage you, you know, to sort of understand that these are all aspects of creating profitability. I can look at a maintenance technician and I can look at a service technician and predict the profitability, you know, based on the pricing models. So uh, last but not least, and it probably should be first, but there's just the longer life of the equipment just the idea of sustainability and the benefits to the customer. Um, I don't think there's any question that that's true. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any great studies. The Louisiana Cooperative Study, I think, was done in like 1971 or 72, and that's about the last time anybody's actually done any research on it. So, But we certainly know that if we actually take care of the equipment, we clean the coil, and we make sure that we're, we're doing the right things in terms of the technical spec, that we're going to end up with you know, a much better piece of equipment that has an opportunity to not have failure. I can give you, it's not a KPI, but I can give you a statistic that I've been tracking, you know, in my company since about 2002, and that is the repetitive failure of a part that comes when we've replaced a contactor or we've replaced, you know, condenser fan motor or we replaced an igniter, and we are continuing the maintenance club program. Um, we only see a 4% failure rate on those recurring repairs. So when they stay in the club, we have the opportunity to make sure that we're doing our part to sort of keep the equipment up to speed. And, and we all know that if we don't do that, that, you know, customers tend not to change their filters as, the, as we would like them to, and they tend not to do the maintenance. And because of that, you know, that, that puts stress on the equipment. Of course, airflow is, is another one of those conditions. So 
that brings us to this conversation. So uh, profitability in club agreements, it, it needs to be a conversation because we all have different shoulder seasons, you know, depending on the area of the country. Um, this would be representative of more of a southern uh, bell curve. So your first couple of months of the year and the end of the year around the holidays, you would represent on the green line uh, a much more difficult pattern to actually get people to sell or buy and consume. Uh, the dotted green line would represent what we would hope to aspire if we actually leveraged our existing customer marketing, which again, you know, to start the, the work here, uh, I noted that this needs to be thought of as a marketing strategy first and a technical strategy as a product second. So if I can move the capacity line that's black up to the dotted line that's green and essentially be able to transact and keep the crews busy, um, that moves the opportunity for profitability to look more like this. If, if we understand what's really going on, this would have been the profit that we would have looked at inside of the historical model, which is you know colored red here. And so we would say, okay, well, that's fine. That might be a 10 or 12 or 13% EBIT company, nothing wrong with that. Um, but what happens is these fixed costs remain whether or not we sell something in the shoulder season or not. When we do sell something, we incur variable costs and we incur the direct costs. So the effect of moving the dotted line, the, the capacity line to the dotted green line is this secondary dotted line that occurs here. And so what you end up with is you end up with an incremental profit that is gained here on top of the red profitability. And that is driven by the idea that we have spread these fixed overhead costs among a broader range of jobs. So I can give you an example. Um, historically, my overhead per day would have been $1,200 per day. And as I executed this strategy, what I can say is that went down to about $867 per day. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of money, you know, when you say, well, that's a difference of sort of $340 or whatever it is, $333. Okay, that, that works, except if you multiply that times the number of jobs that you do in your peak period, Meaning if you look at this particular period, you're doing 80% of your jobs in this period, you get the opportunity to monetize an additional 333 profit dollars times those number of jobs in that 80% quadrant. So the larger the company, the more profitability you've monetized because you were able to do that. How does that work? Well, that's our ability to run the precision tune-ups or the maintenance programs that we have gathered by developing our customer base. And so I'm going to give you a metric here. And this metric is something that you, you would aspire to. It's not, I'm not saying that you should be there tomorrow morning. It might take years to get to this place, but you should be looking at 50% of your customer base uh, at, at being on a club. And that is not just a maintenance program. That's a full club membership. And so we want somewhere around 1500 maintenance club agreements for $1 million of revenue, and the minimum threshold target is 1,000, and that sort of equates to this number right here. So that what that does is that gives me the opportunity to market to customers in this zone right here, and this becomes the net effect of that happening. So I can tell you in the various trimesters that if you look at in this Arizona market or the Florida markets or the Southern markets, again, if you're in Minneapolis or you're in Chicago or you're in Boston, you know, you probably have two shoulder seasons, not just one. But if you can take this 
and you can make this a 10 to 15% EBIT model, and you're running, you know, 25 to 30% EBIT here, what you're able to do is you're able to be able to market differently in this third trimester. And so again, if we can make that set EBIT model because we're we have to market more aggressively, the blend of these EBITs, you know, ends up much closer to 20%. So it takes the stress, you know, off of the company to have to spend the additional marketing monies. So people ask me all the time, how is the KPI of marketing 3% or less? And the answer is, well, it's not 3% or less. You know, if you're sitting in this area right here and, you, and you're living in this line and you do not have the capability to shift demand and consumption into this space. It, unfortunately, that's when you're spending eight, 10, 12, I've seen as much as 15 and 18%. You know, when I did my startups, I was around 18% marketing expense and 15% and so on until we were able to build a customer database. So as you do look at that, you'd have to ask the question, well, where's your profit and your profits and your marketing expenses? So if we can drive that number down to 3% um, or less, you get the opportunity to keep the profitability. And that's also what's creating this opportunity right here. Awesome content right there, as always. Now, be sure to share this on Facebook. And if you're not a member, I want you to click the button below to get a 30-day free trial, which will give you access to all of our amazing content. Well, that's it for this week. We'll see you next time. And until then, my friends, bye-bye for now.